This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director. I'm grateful for your company on this Sunday afternoon. It is just after 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hope you remember to turn your clocks back one hour last night. Stay with us for the next half hour for our features from the week, including the story of the musicians from our area headed to Puerto Rico this week to do what they can to help as folks on the island continue to recover from Hurricane Maria a year ago. WMRA's Kimberly Daggy has that story. Christopher Kleimer-Kurtz reports on the Wildlife Care Academy from the Wildlife Center of Virginia in Waynesboro. They've got some neat online courses that you, too, can take. And Andrew Jenner explores the mystery noise that vexed some residents in the Crozet area in recent weeks. The mystery is solved, sort of. But first, there's an open congressional seat in Virginia's 6th District for the first time in more than two decades. And although pundits expect an easy Republican win in this ruby-red district this year, neither candidate is paying any attention to predictions. WMRA's Andrew Jenner reports. The 6th District, which covers most of the Shenandoah Valley, is ruby red on the forecast maps. Slam dunk GOP territory where Republican State Delegate Ben Klein is expected to easily defeat Jennifer Lewis, the Democratic nominee. Dr. Valerie Solfaro is a political scientist at James Madison University in Harrisonburg. There's little drama in the race because one party is expected to win. This was a district that was drawn to be a safe Republican district, and it generally is a safe Republican district. That's an understatement. In 1992, Republican Bob Goodlatte was first elected to Congress with 60% of the 6th district vote. That would be his lowest margin of victory in 12 subsequent re-elections. Late last year, Goodlatte announced his retirement at the end of this term. Still, even without an incumbent, the website 538.com gives Lewis just a 0.6% chance of winning. So I actually love when people point out, oh, this is really a Republican area. Well, it's not really because we have such a low voter turnout that we don't know what about half of the population of the 6th District even feels because they're not showing up to vote. And Klein, a member of the Virginia House of Delegates since 2002, takes no comfort in being a heavy favorite. I always run like I'm 10 points behind and run through the tape at the end of the day. Entering the home stretch, the candidates have similar ways of describing their approach. It's a grassroots race a truly grassroots campaign. That means a lot of old-fashioned canvassing. Lewis has lost count of the many thousands of doors she's knocked on and has the blisters to prove it. Klein spent 99 days this summer walking from Lynchburg to Roanoke and then north to Front Royal, a few miles and a ton of FaceTime each day. Both are hoping for a big turnout, and both say that would benefit them. If we get records set for people voting in the 6th, I'm confident that I'm the candidate who best represents those values and that I'll be hopefully elected to take those values to Washington. And those are exactly the people that we're targeting this campaign, the people who aren't showing up. That whole anti-corruption pledge that we've taken is really turning on a lot of folks who don't typically vote because that's their issue. They don't want to vote for either party because they feel like both parties are taking dirty money and neither party is truly representing them and what they care about. To be clear, Lewis and Klein are running on very different platforms. Lewis rejects the, quote, corrupting influences of corporate PAC and special interest money and has campaigned heavily on her opposition to the Atlantic Coast and Mountain Valley pipelines. She supports progressive goals such as a $15 an hour minimum wage, marijuana legalization, and various gun safety measures. 
Klein looks forward to supporting President Trump's policy agenda on immigration, health care, and the economy, and is proud to represent conservative rural values that he says have been forgotten by Congress. Faith, family, community, balanced budgets, uh, responsible governance. I aim to go up there and deliver a message about those forgotten values loud and clear. Solfaro, the political scientist, says that a big Democratic turnout may be the only way for Lewis to beat expectations. And that could happen, but I'm not sure that it will. One reason is that midterm voters skew older, whiter, and wealthier than in general elections. And that means that the Republican Party has a natural advantage in the midterm because that at the moment is their constituency. For Democrats to do well in the midterms, they have to do a better job than they usually do at mobilizing their base of voters. They haven't been all that successful since I can remember at doing that. For now, though, one week out, as they make final pitches to the voters they're both counting on turning out in droves, there's one more thing that Klein and Lewis share, confidence. It's been a strong campaign. We're pleased with how it's gone and look forward to hopefully celebrating a victory on November 6th. It's just the feeling, the energy that we're having out on the streets. And I think that just speaks volumes of the amount of people who are getting engaged, who have been sitting on the sidelines for years and then just said, this is it, I got to get involved. Absentee voting, the only form of early voting in Virginia, is way up this year. And analysts say that bodes well for the Democrats. But as they also say, it's all up to the voters. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. Learn more about the races where you are at WMRA.org and be sure to join us for election night coverage on WMRA. We're going to have results and analysis uh, for our area along with NPR's coverage nationwide beginning at 8 p.m. Tuesday. Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico and the damage from the storm is still being felt more than a year later. Robert Mott, a trombone player in Harrisonburg, felt moved to do something for the island's residents. WMRE's Kimberly Daggy reports. Last year in February, I had been reading articles about what had been happening in Puerto Rico with the slow recovery from the hurricane. And I said, there has to be a way to just go down there and spend money. And then I thought, well, I'm one person and I could do that. But what if we took some other people and before you knew it, we have nine of us from the states that are going down and we're doing five days of free concerts and hooking up with some friends that we met a long time ago. Among those friends is Bam Bam Rodriguez, a native of Puerto Rico. He's one of nine trombonists joining Mott for the five-day tour of concerts and workshops. They call themselves Trombonists for Puerto Rico, and they hope to honor, celebrate, and encourage Puerto Rico's ongoing recovery. Dr. Andrew Lankford, who teaches trombone at James Madison University, was one of the first to commit to the trip. He's thrilled with the response from his fellow trombonists. Michael Davis has donated many of his CDs and pedagogical material, warm-up method books and things like that. For over a decade, he was the trombonist with the Rolling Stones. Alex Isles, the first call trombone player in Los Angeles, was one of the very first people to donate some money. Weston Sprott of the Metropolitan Opera also was one of the very first people to support the cause. Mott says the idea for the trip has really resonated in the music community. Mike Corrigan, who owns BAC Musical Instruments in Kansas City, builds some of the most beautiful custom brass instruments. He's going to set up there on Friday and do free instrument repair for anybody that shows up. Sim Flora, who's a trombone professor down at Wichita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, has specifically arranged music for us and given it to us and said, hey, this will be good for your trombone ensemble. 
Mott is especially pleased with the diversity of the ensemble. We're all trombone players. They share that commonality. But everyone comes from a different experience. A lot of us are not full-time trombone players. We do other things. A mix of educators and weekend warriors, semi-professional players that play on ensembles and really just have a passion for the trip. One of those educators is Becca Bauer. She studied trombone at James Madison University under Dr. Lankford and currently teaches band at Walton Middle School in Charlottesville. You're sort of looking for ways that you can feel like you are contributing and helping society in times like that. And I was like, I got to go to this thing. The idea that I could go and play trombone in Puerto Rico, where they have had such a huge setback, a totally different culture and just being able to bring something to them that I have to offer. Among their offerings, not surprisingly, are trombones. We just shipped over 12 P-bones. It's a plastic trombone. They're really good instruments for beginners. They're very lightweight, easy to hold, actually easy to get a sound out of. And they're relatively inexpensive for us and for Hans Selmer, who is helping us acquire those instruments to ship those over there. It's not just music. The group will also spend their money there. We have the goal of making sure that some of the monies that we raise are actually going to people in Puerto Rico. We sought out specifically hotels that were owned by Puerto Ricans that had been damaged to cut through the red tape and get the money into the hands of the people that really needed it. Once that was established and we've already paid for all the hotel rooms, now we're looking for ways to inject money into the economy, buying T-shirts for the all-day workshop that we're doing, and eat in locally-owned restaurants. Trombonists for Puerto Rico hope to not only bring money and music to the island, but also some emotional relief, as Bauer explains. I hope to be able to meet people and talk with them and bring them joy, bring them comfort in a time that there's not a lot of stuff around that helps them. I hope that I am able to learn something about times of adversity and seeing how people are dealing with that and really helping myself put myself in their shoes and also helping to lift them out of that adversity. The Trombone Ensemble will be in Puerto Rico November 7th through the 12th, and they've been rehearsing. They have a GoFundMe page. Find it at Trombonists for Puerto Rico. They hope to raise $14,000 by the time they leave next week. For WMRA News, I'm Kimberly Daggy. And you can find links to more about trombonists for Puerto Rico, including that GoFundMe page at WMRA.org. A year ago, the Wildlife Center of Virginia started what it calls the Wildlife Care Academy to more widely share its expertise with wildlife enthusiasts and professionals. And the program is expanding, WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports. The Wildlife Center of Virginia near Waynesboro is a hospital for wildlife, but it doesn't just fix what's broken. We are truly the Mayo Clinic of Wildlife Medicine. People around the world truly know our name as a center of excellence, as a center that provides assistance and the top training that's available. The center has been providing care for the likes of bears, fawns, vultures, and even field mice for three and a half decades. But this August marked the first anniversary of something new at the center, the Wildlife Care Academy. It's off to a good start and expanding, said Ed Clark, the center's president and founder. We were hoping that we'd reach a few hundred, several hundred people, yet in our very first year, 
we had over 1,400 enrollments in our various online classes and in-person classes, and those represented nearly 900 individuals, many of whom took multiple classes, and they came from 46 states and seven countries. The Academy website lists several class formats with different levels designed for anyone from enthusiasts to licensed veterinarians. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kelsey. I am one of the rehabbers here at the Wildlife Center of Virginia. So thank you for joining us tonight. Those online classes are typically two hours long, cost 25 to $35, and include topics such as wildlife capture, restraint, handling and transport, and songbird and white-tailed deer fawn rehabilitation. So whenever you admit a patient, you want to do a physical exam from head to toe. It's important. I sat in on the online Rehab 304, small mammal rehabilitation, taught by Waynesboro native Kelsey Pleasance. So start at the same point, run through the same routine, end at the same point. The course had about 15 participants and 99 slides that Pleasance showed and talked about as a basic introduction to hand-raising orphaned small mammals from birth to release. Even if it comes in and it has an obvious wound on its right leg, just go ahead and start with wherever you normally start with your exam and just go. My favorite moment was a video of a baby squirrel being fed from a syringe. After the class, I talked with another student, Crystal Hoke. She's attending community college in Northern Virginia and hopes to become a licensed veterinary tech. She said she took the Wildlife Care Academy class to give herself a head start on her career path. She's taken care of squirrels before and was particularly interested in the information about cottontail rabbits and Virginia opossums. Seeing what was available with other animals makes me very interested and more intrigued to learn about other animals, wildlife, I should say. Later this year, the center plans to announce a knowledge certification program for people who have taken its courses. Eventually, they hope to expand that to include skills certification, too, and not just for people who train at the Wildlife Center. Again, Ed Clark. We'll be identifying centers of excellence around the country, working with them so that, let's say, someone in California may well be able to do their practical training at the Lindsay Wildlife Museum in Walnut Creek, California, which is an excellent facility, or the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota, where they can get hands-on training, and then when they are credentialed as a master raptor rehabilitator, it will really mean something. They will be able to prove they have the factual, uh, informational background, the skill set, and the experience to go out and do it independently. The Wildlife Care Academy's offerings are expanding to to include not just wildlife rehabilitation topics, but also nonprofit management courses with titles such as Your True Cost of Doing Business. Here's the Academy's coordinator, Maggie McCartney. All of the knowledge is here. Ed said in a staff meeting, all of us are smarter than any of us. And I think that really applies to bringing the whole staff on board with this and having instructors from all different departments teach what they really know and what they love. The range of classes will be offered during the center's Call of the Wild conference in mid-November in Waynesboro. It's all part of the Wildlife Center's mission, which Clark said sometimes surprises people. The mission of this organization is not healing injured wildlife. The mission of this organization is teaching the world to care about and care for wildlife and the environment. It makes no difference if you heal an animal from some human-caused injury and it has no home to which to return.
With its Wildlife Care Academy, the center is equipping people who care with knowledge about how to care. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer-Kurtz. Just before Halloween, a mystery that has been the talk of Crozet in recent weeks appears to have been solved. WMRA's Andrew Jenner reports on a noise that's been going hum in the night. Alice Faintich first heard the noise in early September, around 11 p.m., as she was nodding off at her home in Crozet's Old Trail neighborhood. The best way I can describe the noise is as a very loud hum, something like, mm. that's as close as I can get it. Her husband guessed it was the air conditioner. Faintich wondered if she was developing tinnitus. Then, a few nights later, she heard it louder than ever before, definitely coming from somewhere else. So we went outside. And um, we walked down the street here towards Old Trail Drive, and what was clearly coming from roughly the intersection of 250 and the interstate. It's hard to hear over the traffic right now. Here's a recording of it recently made near her house, with levels boosted so you can hear it better. Faintage started a thread on Nextdoor, a neighborhood-based social media site where people usually post about missing pets and teenagers driving too fast. Soon, people from all over the area chimed in, saying that they too were hearing the loud hum. I ended up having to buy a white noise machine. I can't handle earplugs. She first suspected the R.A. Yancey Lumber Company, which is less than a mile away down 250 by the interstate, and which, being a lumber yard, can be noisy. But since moving to Old Trail two years ago, Faintage had never been bothered by it before. She called up one of the owners. I asked her if they'd had any new equipment installed recently that would account for a noise we'd never heard before. She said she would check into it and call me back. And she did so the next day and said, no, they hadn't had any new equipment and she couldn't understand what might be making the noise. The gabbing on next door, as well as real life neighborhood interactions started to snowball. Lots of people were hearing the noise, and lots of them found it extremely disruptive. Theories ranged from local construction to work on some nearby high-voltage transmission lines to things that, in Faintich's view, amounted to obnoxious next-door trolling about giant hummingbirds and aliens. In late September, she filed an official complaint with county zoning officials. Lisa Green, Albemarle's senior code compliance officer, received dozens of these calls. When we normally get a call about a complaint, there's a definite I saw this on a specific property, and this particular call was a lot of different people with a lot of different logistical information. I heard it at this time, I heard it at this time, I didn't hear it, I don't know where it's coming from. And of course, descriptions of what the sound sounded like varied. A hum, nails on a chalkboard, some type of hydraulic motor, a large generator. It's important to note that not everyone in Old Trail consistently noticed or was bothered by this noise. Angie Bremont, who lives up around the curve from Faintich, heard it exactly once, about three weeks ago. It woke me up, I checked to make sure something wasn't going on in my house, and then realized it was coming from outside, went back to sleep. And that was that. She never heard it again. Other neighbors, though, still did. Lisa Green's phone kept ringing, the police got called, the local county supervisor became involved, and the lumberyard decided to make extra sure that it wasn't the source of this sound that had become the talk of Crozet. And I said, you know, we need to just get the guy in here that does the sound testing, you know, just to say, hey, we tested and it's not us. Donnie Rose is president of the R.A. Yancey Lumber Company, and his plan didn't go according to script. 
But when we got him in here and we tested, we found out it was us. It turns out that the problem was an induction fan that's part of a boiler in a kiln. The company had recently refurbished this boiler, and after it returned to service, complaints about the hum began, even though this boiler had long been in operation before. So what changed? I'd love to give you some concrete answer that's really interesting, but unfortunately, we don't know. Right now, it's, it's unexplained. Bill Yoder was the acoustical consultant Rose hired to diagnose the problem. Though he had all sorts of fancy equipment at his disposal, all he needed in the end were his ears. One evening in mid-October, standing with Faintich near her house on a night when the hum was humming along loud and clear, he had the lumber mill try shutting down some equipment. Once the switch was thrown on that boiler, the noise very clearly wound down and stopped. Faintich was thrilled. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> it came from the mill. It was such a relief that it wasn't humming. The lumber company issued a statement apologizing for the disturbance and put some special muffling equipment on rush order that should be installed soon. Until then, Rose says, they're scaling back operations at night. Faintich was at a bridge tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina when that decision was made. Last Sunday night, she returned to silence. It was wonderful. It's the best night's sleep I've had in weeks. And so, problem apparently solved, if not entirely explained. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bibb and Dolly Fraser, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation, Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. You'll find all our stories archived at WMRA.org. To support local news on WMRA, go to the website News, then click on News and Information Fund. And once again, be sure to join us for election night coverage on WMRA. It begins at 8 with local and national results and analysis. That's Tuesday night. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.